What is your best investment to date? If the answer is anything other than investment in yourself, then perhaps it's time to reflect. Please join me in this conversation with a diverse set of future leaders who invested in themselves and are investing in creating inclusive spaces. Side, a series of dialogues about winning themes such as diversity and inclusion, creating a social impact, and leading change. Subscribe now to stay in the know. Hello and welcome to the Winning Side Suite. This is your host Sarah Hassan, and as always, I'm here with an interesting dialogue. This time around, it is about you, it is about investing in yourself. I'm big on creating to-do lists. In 2018, I did a priority list revamp. I decided to put myself on the top of my priority list and invest in myself. I hope that's where you sit in your priority list too. When I say invest, I'm touching on a very broad spectrum really, but I choose to classify it into four quadrants. One, your health. Two, knowledge, three, networks, and four, side hustle. The first quadrant, invest in your health, includes both physical and mental health. The second one is about investing in your knowledge. It doesn't have to be like a, you know, super expensive academic program. It could just be like a day-to-day online learning course, a certification, getting yourself a coach, a fresh perspective, or a new subscription to a magazine as well, really. The third quadrant is about investing in networks, finding right mentors, finding right sponsors, building those relationships, learning from each other, cross-mentoring, reverse-mentoring, and all that. And the fourth one is very special to me because it is about finding a cause that you're absolutely passionate about and making it into a side hustle. I believe in the importance of side hustles because they're set apart from your day work. They're areas where you can bring a fresh perspective, a passionate perspective. I was in my early 30s, married, had a job, working in the financial sector in London, but somewhere had inertia and was open to exploration. I decided to pursue executive MBA at the University of Cambridge, Judge Business School. On one side, I had very strong support and well wishes from friends and family. But on the other side, as everybody else, I also got unsolicited advice on how to not invest in self. They said, why don't you invest in property or stocks maybe? Perhaps you need a holiday to think it through. Is it really worth it? My simple answer then and now was, yes, this is my mental retreat. Clearly, you can't pour from an empty cup. At some point, you have to refill your cup and rather continue refilling it. I started my journey at Judge Business School to set to explore, you know, very much in line with, the, with its tagline, which says, see where it takes you. If you are where I was and are struggling to put yourself on top of your priority list, I hope today's dialogue helps you to explore your path and helps you invest in yourself. 
This Feb, I got invited to chair a session with a lovely Cambridge Executive MBA cohort. And I'm delighted to share a glimpse of what they did to invest in themselves and are doing to create inclusive spaces. So let's dive in. We have Becky Cotton, who is Executive MBA from 2015. Becky is the founder of Luminio. We have Hayala Alazova, who is Executive MBA 2014. She is Senior Manager of PwC. We have Mandeep Gill, who is EMBA 2020, which is the current cohort. And uh, he is Head of Service at uh, the Bracken Forest Council. He's the elected Director, Equality, Diversity and Inclusion at British Association of Social Workers. And we have Dr. Bola Grace, who is EMBA 2019, and she is Director and Head of Research and Development Program at SPD, GMBH and Visiting Faculty, UCL. So welcome on board, guys. Thank you, Sarah. Absolute pleasure to have you all here. And uh, it actually brings back Emba Fields from Cambridge. Please share your journeys and, uh, you know, about your role as a founder, leader, advocate of DNI, and where did Executive MBA at Cambridge came into play? No problem, Sarah. Thanks very much for the introduction. Um, so I'm I'm Becky Cotton. I'm part of the 2015 cohort on the Ember program. I spent most of my career to date before the Ember working in mental health policy. So that was mostly at a national level in the UK, but some international level of work. I guess the Ember really opened up this path to me that I hadn't really considered before, which was entrepreneurship and specifically marrying profit with purpose. So last year, I set up my own company, uh, Lumino, which is developing digital therapeutic programs, which are really about challenging or tackling the challenge that we've got globally around poor access to mental health treatment and care. And that's being supported by the Oxford um, Academic Health Science Network, the Eastern Academic Health Science Network in the Cambridge area, and also um, Innovate UK. So to Sarah's point, she was asking about how did the Ember add value, I guess, to that journey? And I guess it's worth reflecting. It was a very formative experience for me. And I took learning from it that I really honestly wasn't expecting to get out of it. I was I was going in there thinking I'm going to get a very broad business education and this is what I need because I've come up through a very specialist pathway and I need to learn about marketing. I need to learn about accounting. And it, it did give me all of those things, don't get me wrong. But the learning that I took from it was much more experiential, I think. And Put very simply, it got me out of a bubble. I'd been in a very specialist career past 15 years and I'd been surrounded by people who had very similar experiences, very similar values, um, very similar ambitions. And that's not something that's unique to healthcare. That that will be the experience of people working in many sectors. But what the Ember allowed me to do was to really take those blinkers off. And that was challenging at time. It wasn't all unicorns and rainbows, but um, I think it was a really formative experience. Wonderful. I loved your statement where you said marrying a profit with purpose. And Paola, would you like to share about your journey and how you are making waves? It's an absolute pleasure. I'm delighted to be here with you. Previous to PwC, I was working at Microsoft for two years in technology, in predominantly in sales and business development. And I, with Microsoft, I traveled around the world and uh, worked in different functions and different roles. I took Ember class when I was um, still at Microsoft. I was looking to, for some changes. And I didn't know where I'm, where I, do I want and where do I want to go? Is the industry I want to change? Do I want to start my own company? I guess, and I wanted to learn more about my leadership style, learn from others and wanted to tap into network, not just business school. And I got more than I, and I loved it. I, I, I built amazing network 
different people, different nationalities. We stay in touch still until now. And during that class, I met so many people from other industries and never thought I will go to professional services. And I decided to go to financial services. I had my startup formulated during the EMBA, tap into Cambridge Network to Accelerator program, helped me to win that best startup award during one of the venture creation weekends. And that was an amazing experience for me as an idealized. I can achieve so much. And I said, like, world is my oyster. So in my current job, on top of being a business development lead for financial services insurance practice, I'm also co-lead in our diversity inclusion initiatives. And that's not my day job, but I do on top of because it's near and dear to my heart. And I can talk more during the conversation, challenge the status quo. That's wonderful. And entrepreneurship, I believe, is the common theme here. Mandeep? Just been reflecting on it. Some parallels there. Predominantly, my background's been in children's services. So quite a niche specialist area, very similar to Becky. And I think with that sort of career path, I was hoping this Ember programme would help pivot my career into another sector, possibly finance. It is very experiential. Actually, Becky just hit the nail on the head. That's um, There's a few people on this call tonight, and we've had these discussions uh, in our own spaces that it feels more than just an academic journey. Uh, and I'm finding myself now leaning more towards entrepreneurship. In terms of my background, so predominantly social work education, really that what helped me to understand the sort of complexity of issues and really to understand how, you know, we'll achieve equality and trying to use diversity and inclusion as tools to achieve those things. Um, I think it was when I was going through my social work education, yes, I could relate to racism and so on, but really, and, and even growing up in a single parent uh, home, I could see some of the oppressions and barriers my mum had experienced. But really to understand the full entire journey, I, I can recall having a bit of a jaw-dropping moment actually at university where I learned about the rule of thumb, where women were, it was permitted, enshrined in law, that women could be experienced violence by their husband as long as the stick is no longer than their, than their thumb. So it's those things, propriety rights and all those sorts of things that made me very feel quite emotive about these issues and very connected to this, of course, through my mum with her hardship and doing all those amazing things. Like I just really had that sort of solid appreciation. And I think the sort of Black Lives Matter last year really sort of moved me as a lead and made me actually sort of use my voice actually in the workplace which I think I've possibly been quite absent and it was surprising to me at that time that actually not everybody else was prepared as senior leaders to use their voices so that's when I took to my non-executive role which is a national role to support the rights of social workers within the workplace and as much as social work is a much a caring profession sometimes we're not as caring as we need to be so, uh, and those barriers are as existent here as they are in other sectors. So really, that was the connection and the reason why I, I sort of took that course. So, we, we really need uh, more of you in the financial services sector. So welcome <laughs> <laughs> in advance. <laughs> Dr. Bola. Hi, oh, please call me Bola. Hello, everyone. I'm Bola Grace. I'm from the 2019 cohort. That means I'm just rounding up my AMBA. So I've worked in the biotech industry for over a decade um, and I've specialised in women's health. I also have a visiting faculty role at King's College London, University College London, where I lecture, supervise students, research, coaching and mentoring and all the fun stuff that academics do. And some of my research in global health has focused on female genital mutilation, women's reproductive health, health social inequalities. Um, so at UCL, I was part of the Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Committee, and that's where I first really got engaged in terms of a 
um, kind of formal role in diversity. So looking at gender equality, covering issues such as BME representation, disability, bullying, harassment. But for most of us, and I'm sure it's the same for many of the panelists, um, diversity is a labor of love. It's not really a full-time job that we all pat, that we all wear. We just think this is an important area that we can um, use our voices as uh, Mandy has talked about. So, and again, it's about looking at diversity in its broadest sense, not necessarily just sticking to gender and race, looking at cognitive diversity as well. So one of the um, reasons why I took on the executive MBA was to broaden my skills. So I've always been from a scientific technical background. I wanted to broaden my skills in, in finance and corporate governance um, and all that jazz. And that has been absolutely fantastic for me. So I applied for the women's scholarship and yes, it does exist. People do get it. And I got it. Um, my sister coached me for that session and it was really intense. One of the ways that I wanted to pay it forward in terms of my research project for the MBA was to actually work on diversity initiatives at top ranking businesses. Key thing for me, as many of the panelists have spoken about, is the networking just rediscovering my value, rediscovering my voice, seeing the value that I bring. I think when I went in, I was like, oh, I feel so lucky to be on this EMBA. And the kind of questions I'm asking, like, you know what, Cambridge is lucky to have me. Um, I bring so much value and it's just shaped the way I see myself. That's wonderful. And I, I love it how you put it, like it helps you rediscover. And those words are exactly how it is. We are mid-pandemic. The narrative of leadership is changing, especially in 2020. As mentioned by Mandeep earlier as well, we had that Black Lives Moment during this year and a lot of other episodes which kind of, it's apt to say that from across the most privileged of positions and professions, lack of inclusion has been one of the core challenges that has been highlighted in the past year. The responsibility lies with, with all of us universally really, with academics and corporations and governments and policymakers. In your area of specialization, what are the top challenges you guys see for creating inclusive spaces with equal growth potential? And if you could start with Becky, that'd be great. I think you're right, Sarah. I think the last year has, has, has brought a lot of those issues that have always been there, but I think they've brought them to the fore. And speaking generally, I was going to say what the biggest challenge is, and I make no apologies for being very straight about this. It's patriarchy and racism. That's that's the two biggest challenges that, that we're facing. They are endemic. Wherever you sit in the world, you know, these are fights that are nowhere near being over. And I think, you know, people's experiences of those things will will differ depending on where in the world that they are, the, the other um, identities that they have. So thinking particularly about intersectionality and, and, and so on, and the industry that they work in as well. I think Whilst, you know, it's really great over the last year that we've seen more people being comfortable starting to have that conversation around what it means to be more inclusive and about Black Lives Matter and about women's place in, in, in employment. I think we're not quite actually at that point where people are really having some of those very challenging and uncomfortable conversations in many industries. And I think, you know, sometimes as someone who, who does start those conversations rather a lot, it, it can be hard starting starting those conversations for, for fear of being seen as being really difficult or strident or too challenging. There is an awful lot of conscious bias and, and unconscious bias out there. And we need to be challenging those structures and we need to be doing that, that collectively as allies. I think to, to what Bola was saying, you know, you, you find your voice. Um, I, that was definitely my, my experience being on this programme. So it's important to find your voice. Specifically, Specifically on tech in terms of the biggest challenges, the biggest challenges that are facing female entrepreneurs is financing. So in the UK, every one pound of venture capital investment 
that is made, only a penny goes to female founded or female founded uh, founder teams. That's outrageous. We don't have anything like a level playing field. That's also not a meritocracy either. I think we're going to need to see some real concerted effort around that to be able to make it, you know, entrepreneurship a more diverse and inclusive space for women particularly. And the stats are even worse for for women who are from um, black and Asian um, backgrounds as well. I mean, it's 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 just outrageous. <laughs> Indeed, and, and and gender investment gap is a real thing. And when intersectionality comes into play, it it becomes even worse. Hello, from financial services or insurance perspective, I I don't think we are there yet. And I will totally honest. I think we are still in a journey. COVID nineteen has accelerated some of the DNI conversations and business. Now we've been more open to bring the issues to life and talk about them openly. What I see is the challenge, especially in these industries, is we are really sometimes good in diversity. I think the inclusion part is the really the challenge. Employees need to feel they have a sense of belonging. They can bring their whole self to work. Their voice can be heard. That's when I say always that magic happens when you bring all these diverse thoughts together. Whatever policies, procedure you implement, KPIs you introduce, this is all good. But I guess it needs to be within our mindset, within our culture, within our behaviors. Everyone has a role to play. We need these allies to stand for us. If the male allies for female or ethnic allies or and in allies in different shape or forms and they're all models in insurance we don't have so many females working on the technology products shaping the future of this insurance products because these products can be not inclusive not thinking about the female having in mind or or other less privileged people in mind i guess that's where we need that inclusiveness and more female female retention retaining this talent and promoting them, having that sustainable pipelines. Even their role models, sometimes they act like queen bees. I'm really sorry, but I have to say that. But I think I both just want to have to say they find a person I really want to be one day. That's a role model. So I decided I'm going to be that advocate for others because uh, I want to make sure the next generation feels like they can achieve their ambition and there's a possible way for them, right? I would say not the leadership only plays the roles. Uh, I understand this uh, swan needs to be set from the high sometimes, but I guess the middle management, middle layer is very important. So we all carry that weight. Thank you very much, Kayla. Lindeep? Uh, most of our organisations have these things. They all tend to be rather aspirational. But do they land, have an impact, make a difference? It's quite something. And there's one really ensuring that they're aligned to the inclusion agenda, but making sure that everybody in the organisation, but every aspect of it also lives and breathes these uh, values. There was just mentioned about leadership as well. And I think inclusive leadership is crucial um, because we've all seen what it, it looks like when it's absent in the workplace and it can take many forms especially to um, that point that was just mentioned again earlier around maternity and women who do, you know, make decisions to have families and so on. Uh, that can sometimes be frowned upon and people are managed and it, it comes with so many other issues. So sometimes they're met with a lack of compassion, not feeling valued and sometimes being overlooked. I'd also say another thing that I've seen in some organisations is ignorance where you know, organisations will feel they're much further advanced with these issues just because they have a policy uh, that refers to that they won't be discriminatory in X, Y, or Z space. So better for us to be taking a more of a humble stance to say that we're always learning, reflecting, and willing to accept some critique about ourselves. What we also see is the bullying continues for those who raise 
um, issues uh, around sexism and prejudice. Uh, and there's an insensitivity to people's experience. Um, you know, we can fall into making an, uh, assumptions about people's identities as well. Uh, that was quite a key topic on one of the venture creation weekends in a really positive way. And it was a biotech one, but we were talking about EDI issues. So that was quite fantastic. It was mentioned uh, earlier as well, intersectionality. So, you know, if you could have a, a woman from an ethnic background who may be disabled or from a specific age group class system. And, you know, they're experiencing double jeopardy um, when it comes to all this sort of prejudice and discrimination. Another big challenge, I'd say, is working with equality and diversity representatives sometimes in your organisations around gender, uh, ensuring that they take the lead on challenging this and making sure that organisations are accountable, that the structures we have in place are accountable and empower individuals. And that's uh, coming to my sort of final point really around HR and policies. In the workplace can sometimes act as a bit of an inhibitor. So those who speak out or use formal procedures are sometimes viewed as negatively and can be penalised. Indeed, it's work in progress and we need more accountability. Bala? Yeah, I think um, Becky, uh, Manzeep and Kiela have covered it extensively. Um, the only thing that I'm going to add to that is the point on, for instance, health inequalities in the health sector. We can see how um, this has affected um, people in terms of COVID. It's just very straightforward. One of the points that I wanted to highlight was in terms of people feeling comfortable, thinking that because we have a policy, everything is in hand. And even taking that a step further, I think one of the biggest issues that we have right now is even acknowledging that there's a problem in the first place. And we really take these things for granted because we, we live in our silos or in our social bubbles or in our industry bubbles. We think just because we hear these things or we see it all the time on LinkedIn or on the news, we think that we've made that such a fantastic progress. Actually, um, it's still very bad. I still meet senior leaders who don't even believe that there's a diversity problem. So I think we still have a long way to go in terms of um, educating. We, I mean, the events of last summer and recently with the B2 drive, there's been so much awareness. And I know we know so much more than we used to, but there's still so much more. Indeed, that's true. And please share your firsthand experience on, you know, in your roles. How do you foster or build safe spaces? And especially during 2020, what, what was your safe safe space particularly i think uh, on that point we completely underestimated the power of dialogue and ch challenging our assumptions and why we think the way we do and because i think the way i do that means everybody else thinks like me and not necessarily even at work even within the emba network i think it's really good to have those open conversations during the events of last summer i remember sending a message to my um, cohort saying, guys, you know, let's talk about this. Your black brothers and sisters are really hurting right now. Let's have a separate group just to discuss what's going on. And we, you know, we talked about so much and that was a safe space, a really simple thing to do um, for us to just cover these topics. And again, it's just so amazing to see that people are coming from completely different pers perspectives. So because you see something, um, you live in your own little echo chamber, you read the same Twitter feed, the algorithm is feeding you something specific that's unique to you, you think everyone thinks like you. Um, I think it's, it's really important to speak up when we see things. I know these are passionate topics, not necessarily in aggressive. That's not the way you win people over. But just saying, you know, I, I'm a big believer in, uh, in fostering a climate of tolerance and respect and grassroots efforts. Um, just, you know, pulling them aside or like, you know what, you mentioned this in class because you see the casual 
kind of dismissal of the topic in some areas. So, you, you know, you just have a sidebar and say, I noticed you mentioned this. Why do you think that way? And I know there are more um, formal ways of, of tackling this. But for me, the, the dialogue, the engagement at grassroots levels actually can be very, very impactful. These are great tips. They could be used at workplaces as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we're all always waiting for this corporate policy and a statement on diversity and our statement. And those are good. We need to hold corporations to, to account and we need to know where they stand. But at the same time, we need to use our own voices. Within the university, we've started a DEI group formed by the 2020 cohort. And we're working with some of the, uh, the academics, but also students from other disciplines as well to attempt to try and shed more light on this area. So we're very much in early days. Uh, but And what we know is that gender networks provide women with a place to connect, communicate and share experiences, common experiences. So therefore, uh, one of my colleagues as well um, on the cohort, Shrada Warman, has created a women's leaning group. Um, unfortunately, I don't have an invite to that. So um, we aim to plan um, for celebrations such as Women's International Day on the 8th of March. Um, we are combining efforts with the alumni that I mentioned earlier to bring about change and create opportunities. So they're also uh, have been making strides for the last five years, I understand, in this space. And we're actually thinking about how we can align our efforts just to have a bit more of a greater impact. Um, we're considering initiatives such as mentoring, um, conferences to educate others and exploring the creation of safe spaces online. I've also raised the issue um, with our management practices lecture um, in our first term, I was quite ballsy, um, just to see if we could actually initiate some more discussions and learning around these topics. And he was really open to that. So that was quite positive as well. Um, outside of work, um, I'm connected to various groups. I won't list them all, but um, one that seems to be gaining quite a lot of traction is diversity and leadership. And that's as part of the sort of Green Park executive recruitment uh, and they offer lots of literature tools as well around safe spaces, not just around gender. So, yeah, I'm happy to be uh, a resource if anybody needs to get in touch. And while we mentioned um, these uh, about these safe spaces, I know Becky and Kayla very nicely pointed out some key challenges, one being gender investment gap, the other being the requirement to change the mindset and to change the offerings in terms of products available Really, if we narrow it down a little bit more, in terms of gender data gap, how do you think, Becky, this is impacting this uh, your particular industry? I thought, given the, the topic of this conversation, this would give me a chance to then recommend the book that I recommend to everyone, which probably half the people on this call probably have got already. But if you haven't read that, read that. So there's some fantastic examples in that book of how those data gaps are impacting on the healthcare industry. So women, for example, are 50% more likely to be misdiagnosed after a heart attack because too many heart failure trials have um, typically used male participants. If you think to yourself, who is, you know, um, picture in your head somebody having a heart attack, it's probably somebody who's male. It's probably someone who's aged about 60. They're probably white, maybe. Um, they're probably overweight. But, you know, this happens to women too, and women get misdiagnosed. Women are 17% more likely to die in a car crash because crash test dummies are based on the 50th percentile sized man. So there's so many examples of these of these data gaps which which impact our lives in so many different ways but obviously from where I'm sitting particularly in healthcare what I see is that there are particular underserved needs for particular groups. 
I was having a conversation today with with um, with a gay man who'd been working with Terence Higgins Trust, and we were talking about actually there's there's a really big underserved need for LGBT youth in terms of mental health for women. There's so much unmet need, but the the area that I'm focusing on at the moment is is menopause because anxiety and depression rates in women peak at the age of menopause. There's not very great treatment um, for, for there's not many great treatment options and treatment innovations actually even happening in that kind of space so I'm doing a lot of work around that so there's so much um, in terms of like everyone's field that's that's impacted by by data gaps and um, whether that's to do with gender or ethnicity it's absolutely massive um, and if you don't think the sector that you're in is affected that way then you're not looking hard enough or read that book Indeed, and I'll, I'll name the book Invisible Women because the session's being recorded and some people can't see it. So, so yes, this book is brilliant. Thank you so much for sharing that. Hello? That's a brilliant book, Becky. That was my only written book on the way to Turkey this summer, my only vacation. Been surveying lots of organizations, thousands about on gender pay gap reporting and also on ethnicity pay gap reporting. And probably, you know, this government made it mandatory, right, to release the gap. In April, they suspended that deadline to release pay gap reporting because of the COVID. And that you can imagine how much problems and challenges it's creating in that data collection, right? And, and many organizations are saying they've valued some reporting ethnicity. A few of themselves uh, calculated, published them, ethnicity pay gap. As a result, 40% of the companies were surveyed and they say they don't currently have data to calculate the ethnicity pay gap. Unfortunately, and of those who did, many struggled to get high response rates in the area of where information can only be requested on a voluntary basis. But there's a desire to take action. Gender pay gap reporting, I would say from conversation where I'm saying it's just a small part of it. But what it does basically is provide the immediate opportunity to signal the intent that there is organization your employees is trying to take action, trying to look at the data, trying to make the action and your stakeholders and everyone in the dialogue remains open every year. There's a gender pay gap. Uh, if there's a mean statistics, 40% has increased and the rest has decreased. I have seen the slow changes in many of these organizations. I will say 4,000 organizations were surveyed. And there's also the gap in the bonus payment as well. And uh, there was a slight changes, not dramatic. So if I can add from that perspective, this is really important to have that data. That's wonderful. And that's some great feedback. There's a lot happening on the chat and there's a lot that the audience wants to say. I think we should, uh, should take some time to now hear what our audience has to say and any questions they have. What do you think, Jack? Shall we open to Q&A? Yes, absolutely. Let's take some questions from the audience. Nanta wants to know uh, how the executive MBA helped them develop knowledge and skills Finding funding. You just have to make the most of the opportunity there. So if, if entrepreneurship is something you're exploring while you're at the business school, I'm sure there are plenty of people who would be very happy to have a chat. And probably your classmates on the EMBA are going to be just as helpful than faculty will be. For a lot of people, it's, a, it's these things don't necessarily come into play until after you finish the course. It is very, very intense. Interestingly enough, we're doing things like venture creation and the networks that have become available. So we know that you've got the sort of Cambridge Accelerator programs. You have various biotech companies. I was only speaking to Illumina just last week. Uh, I've had contact with NIAB. We've had the Oxbridge Angels who have presented to us. So we've got our own entrepreneurship group within our cohort. There are lots of networks there. And if I can add Mamta, and I'm 2014, right, the oldest cohort. When I had my startup chosen and that's the first angel investor were coming after me offering something but they asked me to drop my full-time job which I couldn't do because they're investing they need that commitment but 
What I'm trying to say, Mamta, in my time it was difficult. I think in this time it's you have plenty of opportunities. Okay, and slightly on a slightly related note, uh, Christina would like to know how we can make entrepreneurship more inclusive for women. Before you get to the stage where you're pitching for for venture capital money, you really, well, you'll be developing an MVP and an offer. Um, it's very rare somebody's going to, you know, with with no prior sort of network or no no prior having sex, successfully exited a startup. You're not going to turn up at a venture capital office and then, and then just walk away with a million quid in their pocket. It doesn't work like that. You need to be able to show some track. You need to be able to show product. You need to be able to show traction. And I think... For, for me, I think there's a question of how can we support more women into that kind of pathway? Because it is quite a risky pathway. And the thing that I've been acutely aware of is that there's a certain amount of privilege at being able to, like I was, I was able to step away from my job and rethink what I wanted to do and then research what I wanted to do and then do it. Now, if I'd have tried to do that in my 20s when I was working for charities and, you know, I, I, could, I wouldn't have been able to make my rent, that would have been an absolute disaster. And I think more women, you know, we've touched on unequal pay and gender pay gaps and things like that. I think women are in a less likely position to be able to afford that a lot of the time is the sad reality there are some really great schemes here in the UK that will support women on that kind of journey. I've had support to Innovate UK and they've been absolutely amazing. I think that ecosystem is relatively underdeveloped. There's a reason there's a meme going around on Twitter for the last couple of days saying it, this is the picture of every single European startup and it's a picture of three white guys. And everyone's just responding to it, just going, oh, my God, this is hilarious. Because it's true. Right? <laughs> it really is, usually is three white guys in their 30s. That's what they kind of look like. So we need to make that more inclusive. The only thing I can say loudly, and I say this a lot, get the sponsor for yourself. We women are over-mentored. We need mm. sponsors. And most of the sponsors, are, unfortunately, they are they're male. Sponsors are important in our careers. What I notice, men will get lots of sponsors. So make sure you you have that sponsor by your side. One hundred percent. Um, that. So if there was if there was one bit of advice, I'd say you know if you were going to start interrogating this stuff at the, your company that you work in, if you work in a corporate, is if anybody mentions mentoring as a solution to getting more women into top jobs, tell them to go and read the actual evidence on this stuff. It's sponsorship women need. They don't need more mentorship. We don't need this deficit model. It's the same for, for people from Black and Asian backgrounds as well. It's, you know, people, we don't need more mentorship because it implies that we're not ready for those jobs. Yeah. And, and, and the danger with COVID as well, we are not in these rooms when the decisions are made, right? We are at home juggling the life, homeschooling, all of this, and the, we are excluded more and more. Yeah. And I said there's a question from Christina. How do you define a sponsor? In a basic words, mentor is just there to share the knowledge with you. Coach is just going to direct you where you want to go. They're not going to stop from you. They're just going to tell you how to get there. Sponsors, I guess, you know you really well and can bang on the table for you when these decisions are made in the room without you. Say, yeah. this, this, this woman is, is the right for job and I will fight for her. And she doesn't need to prove herself to me because I know her 100%. She's eligible. She's capable. Absolutely, 100%. And a sponsor is going to help you get that job and vouch for you. Thank you for organizing this uh, wonderful uh, panel, bringing us all together. And as we uh, part, I think something that ha has been a common talk amongst us, yeah, yes, doing a executive MBA at Judge was a personal investment for all of us, but also it gave us that safe space 
where you're not judged and you can bring up topics and things that are closer to you and things that are needed to bring about the right change in the society and in leaderships. So on that note, a big thank you to this wonderful lineup. to design, create, and build an inclusive club. If you enjoyed this dialogue, please share it as a care gift with your friends, family, and wider networks. Your feedback is what makes us inclusive. Please subscribe and engage with us on podcast platforms, YouTube, and Instagram handles. Until next time, ciao, ciao.